up to Acts chapter 13. We're going to be continuing our study through the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the seat pockets in front of you. It's also going to be projected up behind us, and you can follow along that way. Um, so, I don't think I've, I've ever shared this before. You are, you are the man. I, I, <laughs> I feel like one of those televangelists every time you do that. Okay, $50. <laughs> um, oh, boy. So I don't think I've ever shared this before, um, not just here, but not in a message, period. Um, But I want to share with you guys a quick story about the first time I ever preached before we get into Acts chapter 13. I was only saved about two years, and I was going to the Moody Bible Institute out in Chicago. And we had to have a student ministry to be able to... uh, pursue ministry there on campus, and if I chose prison ministry, if you're familiar with my story at all, you know that I have a bit of a messy past, that I've been on the wrong side of the law more times than I care to admit, um, that um, my prison ministry before getting saved was just in prison, not a ministry. Um, (laughs) So the idea of being able to walk into a prison to tell somebody about the freedom that they could find in Jesus and to get to leave on my own accord was just really an overwhelming thought to me. And even still, when I think back on on the sweetness of that time, it it really just brings tears to my eyes. When I I was thinking about that in preparation for this message, it was just bringing tears to my eyes. Um, Well, I have to admit that at the first time I was there, um, I was just kind of waiting for them to run my name and some old charge to come up and for them to decide that they were going to keep me there. <laughs> and I was a bit on the edge of my seat right up until that door slammed and I got to walk out. Um, I, I'm, I'm actually lying to you. I was on the edge of my seat until I got in the car, drove away, was asleep in my own bed. <laughs> and I, like, I wanted to make sure there are going to be no repercussions that come along with this. But in all seriousness, I, I've done prison ministry over the years, and it still amazes me each time I get to walk out on my own accord. But back to my first time ever preaching, I used to go into... Um, the prison with this crazy charismatic group. Um, I don't know your feelings on people that are are very out there charismatic. Um, I've heard George Verwer once say that um, I love charismatics, asthmatics, drug addicts, and every other kind of addict you can think of. And that's kind of the way that I felt about it. But but they were nutty. Uh, They were a wacky group. But wow, did they love Jesus. And wow, did they have a passion for evangelism. And I would usually go over there and I I would sit in on the sermon and a few of the inmates would come and I, I would get to lead like three or four of them in a small group discussion afterwards. Well, this particular Thursday night, after the time of worshiping the Lord in song, the pastor that led the ministry that night opened up in prayer like he normally would and was about to preach. And then he turned and with this much notice, he said, Brother Eric's going to preach the word to us tonight. I was green as can be. Never preached before in my life. And I had all of eight seconds of notice. 
And it was one of those moments where you kind of look over your shoulder and you hope that there's somebody else that goes by Brother Eric. Um, and um, I'm just like praying that somebody else will raise their hand and volunteer, but no such luck. So with my voice quivering, I asked them if I could pray again, partly because I was so scared that I knew that it had to be God's help that was going to do this, and partly because I was just stalling and I didn't know what to say. So I opened up my Bible and I preached from one of the few texts that I felt like I could really understand, and I had them open up to Romans chapter 7. And what I preached on was the verses where Paul says, hey, you know, the very thing I want to do is the thing I end up not doing. The things that I don't want to end up doing are the things that I end up doing. Why is there this war that's constantly waging within my members? Why is it that I keep doing the things I don't want to do and I end up not being able to do the things that I do want to do? And I've never even got a chance to get around to asking them if they identified or if they were feeling me because their amens spoke so loud and clear, but not as clearly as the tears that were just streaming down their cheeks. And then I got to the heart of the problem in verse 24 of Romans chapter 7, where Paul just throws his hands up in frustration and says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And I told them that, Man can spend their whole life looking for the answer to that particular question. Or they could just keep reading on to the next couple of verses where it says, And thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord, so that I on one hand myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of spirit and life has set us free from the law of sin and death. And what followed is still one of my sweetest memories that I've ever had in my Christian life. Some men sat there and wept. Hardened men sat there and wept as I shared this with them. Others wanted to talk about why is it that I continue to choose the very things that I hate when I know that I hate them already. Others repented of sin right there on the spot. Some wanted to share about the sweetness of how they came to know the answer to the question that Paul posed in verse 24 and the sweetness of the fact that though their sentence might still condemn them, their Savior no longer does. And a few professed Christ as Lord right there on the very spot. And as I left, it was surreal. God showed up. God did something big. As I thought through that night, I either had to conclude that I preached the best sermon of my life right out of the chute, and if you've ever heard a new preacher preach their first sermon, you know that that was not the case. That's usually just a lot of and, uh, duh, uh, uh, uh. I mean, you know how first sermons go. So I could either conclude that or I had to conclude that God showed up and blessed the preaching of the gospel and that sometimes those who are the most far off end up being the ones who are the most receptive to the Word of God and to the preaching of the Gospel. Sometimes it's the ones who seem like they should get it 
that end up being the ones that reject the gospel the hardest than those who seem the least likely to get it by man's standards are the ones who receive the word with joy, humility, and gladness. And that's exactly what we see in the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. Those who seem like they should have been the religion all-stars, that seem like they've been waiting for a Savior for years, even generations, were completely unaware of their need for a Savior and rejected the very notion that they needed saving to begin with. While those who were considered to be cut off from the promises of God ended up being the ones who, like the men in the prison that day, cried out, O wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death, only to find the answer to thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So thankfully, God does not see things the way that we see things. And as we're going to see, the perfect candidate for receiving God's word for receiving the gospel is not some stained glass saint, but the one who is humble and contrite and trembles at his very word. And you know it results a rejoicing in Christ that is just so full of joy that the world in its best day can never reproduce it. And that's what we're going to see in this passage. And I'm going to pray, God, I ask that you would bless the preaching of your word, Lord, that as we dig in, Lord, that you would just come and work on our hearts and show us Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So this passage begins the same way that last week's passage began with Paul entering the synagogue. Look with me at verse 44. It says, And next Sabbath, the whole city was gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So Paul shows up in the same area and begins preaching to a crowd that was made up primarily of recent converts to Judaism. And he preaches a sermon from the word of God. Synagogues back then were very liturgical in nature. They still are today. And they would follow this predetermined set up reading schedule that would go from Sabbath to Sabbath. And when I say reading, they're obviously reading just the Old Testament. There was no New Testament yet to be reading from. The New Testament was in the process of unfolding and wasn't even to be written yet. So Paul shows up and he reads from the next reading and he does the same thing that he did the previous Sabbath. He begins to share about Jesus and preach the gospel from their reading in the Old Testament scriptures. And I have several little mini tangents that I want to share this morning from this passage. But the first one is, I love how Paul was basically able to preach the gospel from any and every text and any and every life circumstance that you put in front of the guy. If we really believe that this whole book is about Jesus from cover to cover, if that's not just something spiritual that we say when we go to Bible studies or something spiritual that we say so that we could fit in with the cool reformed crowd, that's an oxymoron, by the way, Um, but I'm just, I have a son named Calvin, so I I can shoot at reformed folks, Um, but if we really believe that the whole book is about Jesus, and we really believe that the whole book is telling the redemptive story of God, and we really believe that gospel centricity is the natural reading of Scripture and not something that we've made up or imported into the text, well, then we should be able to see Jesus cover to cover and share the beautiful story of God's redemption 
redemption and something that can be found from Genesis all the way to Revelation and everywhere in between. That's something that theologians refer to as gospel fluency. We should be able to be so fluent in the gospel that we are able to tell the good news of God's rescue mission from cover to cover through the Bible because it's certainly in there on every page of sacred scripture. We're not making this up. Keep this in mind. Paul didn't have the advantage of having Romans chapter 3 to preach out of when he was preaching to these people because Paul didn't write Romans chapter 3 yet. He shared the story of Christ's redemption, our redemption, from the Old Testament Scriptures, and he did so with great precision, accuracy, and care. An author and church planter that was a mentor of mine early on and was very formative in my early years used to refer to as what he called Bible roulette. And what he meant by that is that he would just open up his Bible and let it fall to any page and he would see if he could preach the gospel from whatever page the Bible opened to. That was actually his ordination exam is let this fall open and preach the good news of Jesus from any given text. And man, that might be... That might sound like it's overwhelming to some, but I want to submit to you that it's actually a whole lot more natural than you think. Sometimes I'll sit with my nine-year-old son, Elijah, and ask him, what did you get out of the Word in your morning devotions? And without any coaching, as he's reading through Genesis or 1 Samuel or wherever he's in, he'll tell me about how Jesus is at work in the passage doing this or that. The kid has a more gospel-centered understanding of the Word than I did in my first four years of Bible college for a very simple reason. Check this out. If you never learn to moralize people out of the Word, then you don't have to undo the bad habits and learn how to unmoralize your understandings of Scripture. I don't want to overstate it and say that the guy just nails it every single time he opens up the Bible. He is, he is nine and he is human. But I want to point out, the reason I use this as an example is because the Jesus-centered understanding of Scripture is actually the normative understanding of the Bible, if you read it correctly. And that's what Paul does here in his sermon, and for that matter, in every other sermon that he preaches throughout Acts and the entire New Testament. So let's take a look at their reactions to this preaching. Look at verse 45. It says, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict the word of God as it's being preached, and they're lashing out against and reviling the apostle Paul. But it was not ultimately Paul that they were lashing out against or Paul that they were reviling. It was the gospel. These people who fancied themselves to be the religious elite were reviling the preaching of the gospel. And I assure you that this is not the last time that a religious person is elected to lash out against the preaching of the gospel rather than humble themselves and come underneath it. And if you have a religious family, 
that contradicts what you say or reviles you or lashes out for sharing the hope that is within you from Jesus Christ. I just want to share with you that you are not alone in that, that it is not you who they are rejecting. They're rejecting God. You see, passages like this show that there's actually a dual nature to the preaching of the Word of God. The Word of God always either hardens or softens a heart whenever it's preached. But one thing is for sure, your heart does not remain the same after spirit-filled preaching of the Word of God. It either softens and you want to be more receptive to God's Word, yearning even more. And if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. It's the kind of encounter with God where you just say, I want more of Him. Where you engage Him and you sense His nearness and you leave that place of devotion saying, man, I wish I could just remain in this place all day because the sweetness of my Jesus is so near and so dear to me at this moment. And if you've tasted it, you know what I'm talking about. Those times where you've been in corporate worship where you're singing and you just think, can we just do this forever? Because it feels like heaven itself has come down and kissed the earth and you got to participate and be able to see heavens unfold before your very eyes. And in those moments, you just want to immerse yourself in His grace and His truth and His beauty. If you've not been there in a while, I would encourage you, get on your knees. Ask Him. He's a good Father. If we, know being evil, know how to give good gifts... How much more our Father in heaven? So that's one reaction. Or the heart is hardened. And it begins to build a wall around itself so that it can remain impenetrable and not have to feel the weight of conviction from the Word of God being preached because that foreign feeling that they don't like is conviction and hard, impenitent hearts don't like the feeling of conviction. And if you're in that place, I just want to say it as plainly as I can, you will not win, and that's a dangerous place to be with. You're playing with fire if you're allowing your heart to be hardened against conviction. God can turn the heat up. God can speak louder, not because He's an angry or vengeful God, but because He loves you too much to allow you to continue to harden your heart and wall your heart around allowing conviction to begin to seep in. But you see both reactions happen in this passage. And if you've been a Christian for any period of time, Time, you see both reactions happen regularly in people over the years. And I'm not just talking about in evangelism. I'm not just talking about when you talk to a non-believer and you preach the good news of the saving relationship with Jesus Christ and they spurn it and reject it. So not just in evangelism, I'm also talking about for a Christian when they decided that they want to rebel and they get very, very hard when you remind them of Scripture. When a heart has already decided that it's committed to rebellion, it can become a very dark, dark place. Brothers and sisters, if that's you and in a crowd this size, just it would be a statistic amazement for that not to be anybody that's in this room. If that's you, I just want to plead 
with you to reconsider that stance because when a heart has committed itself to rebellion when you've committed yourself to yes I know that God is calling this but anything that comes after that word but will only lead to your destruction that's a biblical promise and it's a scary thing when we become numb to conviction one of the things that's probably top five most regular prayer requests of mine is God, never, ever take away my ability to hear, feel, and sense conviction. Anybody else out there just love conviction? I mean, conviction, it's, if you stop feeling conviction, it would be like going to the ER and then putting that cuff on and it just coming up zeros across the board. You're flatlined at that moment. Conviction is evidence that you are still spiritually alive to God. It's a scary thing when we become numb to conviction. So Paul moves on. Um, And we see Paul do the same thing that he does every time he goes to a mission trip. He starts in the synagogue. Look with me at verses 46 through 47. It says, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary to the word of God first to be spoken to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles that you might bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed unto eternal life believed. So this actually goes all the way back to a promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, where he made a covenant with Abraham and to his people. A covenant is a fancy word for a promise, and God promised that he would always remain faithful to the children of Abraham. And Paul actually says that it was necessary in verse 46. He uses the word necessary, that he would start with Abraham's descendants because God made a promise. And I just want to give you guys a reminder here this morning, God always keeps his promises. If you want evidence of that, even in a passage like this where we see that people are vehemently rejecting God's promises and by extension are vehemently rejecting God himself, yet God still is faithful to his promises. It's as Paul told Timothy, even when you remain faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself, meaning that God's faithfulness is not predicated upon our faithfulness or lack thereof. God's faithfulness is predicated upon his perfect, unwavering character that is who he is. And in case you're here and you're wondering if God is going to be faithful to you, to his promises, think through all the rejection that he received in this passage thus far with respect to the promises that he had made, and yet he still honors the promises that he made. So how much more so to those who love him and are called according to his purposes? How much more to those who love him and he calls his children and who are waiting on his promises? And after doing, as Paul says, what is necessary... 
God is about to make a really significant move. Look again at verses 46 through 48. So, it was necessary that the word of the Lord be spoken first to you, but since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves worthy of eternal life, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light to the Gentiles, that you might bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So the Lord is about to make the gospel, the life-giving gospel, known to a whole new audience. But before he does, I want to point out the significance of this wording. Paul tells the religious Jews that they were the ones that had thrust aside the Word of God. That's Paul's exact words. They were the one who judged themselves unworthy of eternal life, which is really interesting wording because none of us are worthy of eternal life. That's why it's grace. That's why it's a gift. That's why it takes supernatural regeneration to be able to take a dead, sin-sick heart and be able to pump it back into life and existence. But this is pointing out that they had the pure gospel preached to them. They rejected it. They mocked it. And so God kept His promises. They're the ones that continued to kick against it and reject it. And I just want to ask you a heart check here this morning. How have you responded to the preaching of the Gospel of Jesus Christ? Because in any church service, there are believers and there are people who have not yet put their faith in Jesus. And if that's you and you're here this morning, as you've heard the good news of eternal life in Jesus, have you embraced it? Have you sat in services like this and done what it says there and continued to thrust it aside? Look, you can know the joy and gladness that it talks about in the remainder of this passage. Remember when I said that God is faithful to all of His promises? One of those promises is that anyone who comes to Me, I will in no way cast out that He will give you the love that your heart was created for. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says He was the one that put eternity in your heart to begin with, and He will grant you that eternal craving that you were created for. He wants you to know that joy that can only come from acknowledging and knowing Him. But this is not only just a neat evangelistic moment in the book of Acts. Verses 47 and 48 are one of the most important historical moments in the history of the world. Listen to me. It's one of the most important historical moments in the history of the world. It's crazy. All of the lesser history that people can just recite as fact and recite from memory, but not realizing the historicity and importance of this very moment. It is the corner-turning moment of the book of Acts. The whole book of Acts hinges upon chapter 13, verses 47 and 48, because the good news goes from being something that is primarily belonging to a specific ethnic people to a specific people group at a specific point in time, and it becomes something that's wide open for all of history and all of humanity to be able to hear the good news preached to every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is what Jesus was talking about. This moment right here. Check this out. This is really, really cool. 
This moment right here is what Jesus was talking about in John 4 when he talked to the woman at the well, when he said, someday it's not going to matter if you worship on this mountain or that mountain. It's not going to matter if you worship in this temple or that temple. Okay, you say you're from the Samaritans. I'm from the Jews. Guess what? That's not going to matter either. It's not going to matter, like Paul said in Galatians, whether you're male, female, free, or slave, Greek, or Jew. Someday, he concluded, that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And check it out. This is that day. It's happening. It's unfolding right before your very eyes. You're watching that unfold in Acts chapter 13. Another scripture that you're seeing fulfilled right before your very eyes is Psalm 118.22 that the stone that the builders rejected would ultimately become the chief corner stone. The scriptures foretold that he would be rejected and forsaken of man. But amidst his rejection that this Christ would become the chief corner cornerstone through which all of history would end up being built. And again, it's happening right there before their very eyes, which is why I cannot overstate the importance of verses 47 and 48. And they were given the opportunity to embrace this cornerstone. And given the opportunity, some had fallen on the stone and were smashed to pieces. Some fell on it only to be broken that they might be made whole for the first time. As the hymn writer says, I fall on my knees to learn to get back on my feet again. So this Christ, who is the rock of offense to many in this passage, is the rock of salvation to all who would believe in his name. And I have an important but necessary tangent. You're always going to see a faithful remnant that God is going to call to Himself. As it says right here, as many as were appointed unto eternal life believed. And we do this truth a great injustice. And, and, and I know that this is a little bit of a soapbox, but forgive me a soapbox for a minute. We do this beautiful truth a great injustice when we embrace this new. If we just make the Gospel cool enough, Gospel that's being preached today or if we take the sting out of the gospel then maybe people will be able to embrace it maybe if we just take some of those things like the bloodiness of the whole thing out i mean there is a fountain that flows deep in emmanuel's veins that's bloody that's gory we're enlightened now we don't preach that kind of stuff let's take the sting out of that so that it's more palatable to a future generation look it is not your job to make the gospel cool. It is not your job to take the sting out of the gospel. It's interesting because for the last hundred years, the great enemy of evangelicalism, if you have to have a villain, and, and evangelicals do enjoy having a good villain, it's liberalism. Liberalism has been the great enemy but I want to submit to you that there's a bigger enemy. Do you even think about theological liberalism anymore? They took enough rope and hung themselves. Like, they're not even a subcategory for me. I don't even consider what wacky stuff they're coming up. Because it's not even close 
to the gospel anymore. It's so far out there that it's not even something that's on my radar. But man, over the last 20 years, there's been nothing that has obscured the preaching of the gospel more than if we just find the right way to package it. If we just find the right way to make it cool, then young people will stop having this max exodus out of the church and they'll return to the church and they'll care about the church. I remember doing a youth retreat one time for this junior high youth group. A bunch of kids were about to uh, make um, communion. And I said, well, what's your plan after that? And the youth pastor very flippantly said, well, they graduate from church after that and hopefully we'll see them again when they become older and they'll come back to the church. It's nonsense. It's that, it's, that man should have been fired on the spot and maybe even horse whipped. Um, <laughs> strike that last comment from the recording, please. Man, how do you just sit and look somebody in the eye that says something that's just so heretical to the good news that saved you? Entire churches and ministries are built on this lie that if we just make the gospel cool enough, if we just make church cool enough, then young people will be interested. If we just make cool enough videos, if we just have enough of a presence online, if the pastor has just the right amount of hair product in his faux hawk, if he has cool little metallic buttons on his shirt, if he's wearing the right skinny jeans with the right label on it. You guys don't want to see me in skinny jeans, I promise you. If we had a cool enough band, and maybe if that band had some fog machines that went along with it, and maybe even some lasers, then church could look like a Pink Floyd concert, and if we just name it something like Splurge, the monastic community, then people are just going to flock to it. Give me a break. Give me a break. They can see it. They know it's corny. They're hurting for you when they look at that. They're embarrassed on your behalf when you try those gimmicks to reach them. We are not called to package the gospel. We're not called to make the gospel look cooler. We're called to be faithful to the good news of Jesus Christ. And guess what? The truth is still true that if the Son of Man be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. He didn't say, lift me up. Put a fog machine, and then maybe a long, drawn-out, hypnotic voice. Keep calling people to the altar. Keep calm, calm, calm. They're embarrassed as they see that. Folks, it's driving young people out of the church. It's not attracting them to it. The gospel is still the gospel, and it always will be. We will sing eternity of the praises of the gospel. This passage shows us that the fruit of preaching the gospel faithfully will be evident because God honors the preaching of the gospel through the infusing of His Spirit. Look with me at our final verses. It says in verse 48, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy 
and with the Holy Spirit. Look, God honors the faithful preaching of the gospel. Drawing a crowd is not the same as God giving fruit in honoring the preaching of the gospel. And if you believe that that's the truth, look at John chapter 6, where Jesus has perhaps the biggest crowd that he had in his entire earthly ministry. And he says, look, this is the deal. If you want any part of me, you need to eat my body. You need to drink my blood. And if you don't, you have no part of me. And the people say, this is difficult. Who can hear it? And they begin to dissipate. And Peter says, hey, Jesus, you're losing the popularity contest. The people are starting to split shouldn't we go after them and he says hey Peter you want to split too and Peter says where should we go Lord you alone are the ones with the words of eternal life look crowds are not the be-all end-all I'm not against crowds either I mean anything that's healthy should grow we're seeing tremendous growth I'm excited about that but crowds are not our end game folks Jesus is the end game faithfulness to the word of God is the end game God causes the increase anything else it's just like you tell a young girl when she's going out dating you know watch what you use to catch a man because you what you use to catch him is going to be what you have to use to keep him same thing in church folks if you're going to use licks tricks and gimmicks to catch people then good luck staying on top of the next licks, tricks, and gimmicks to be able to keep people. Jesus made this so clear. If we don't eat his flesh and drink his blood, we have no part of him. This is the message of salvation that's being talked about in this passage. It's tough to hear, but guess what? As many as were appointed unto eternal life were able to hear it, according to verse 48. And as many who heard it rejoiced. These are the thoughts that I want to end our time with. As many who heard it rejoiced. Look at the rejoicing that is just all over this passage. Guys, you know that I come back to the topic of rejoicing so often. And the reason I do is because Christians are miserable way too often. I don't understand how people just go about Oh, Jesus saved me. I wish you'd just come and rapture me. I hope Tim LaHaye is right and we don't have to deal with any of this garbage. Just get me at... He saved you unto joy. Rejoice in Him. These people that were cut off saw that they were now recipients of a message that was not theirs to be made recipients of. And they rejoiced. They freaked out over this. How's your rejoicing been? And if you've not been rejoicing lately, take a look at the new Christians in this passage. Or, better yet, go and put some... Eh, not better yet, both. Go and put some new Christians in your life because you're probably hanging out with the same stale old farts if you haven't rejoiced in a long time. And not only did they rejoice, but they hungered to hear more of the Word. That's the unfolding of this passage. They're saying we're hungry for it. We want more of this. We can't get enough of this. How beautiful is that? So let's bring this home. And I want to show you guys just side by side a comparison. I have a slide up there of the people who embraced versus the people who pushed against the preaching of God's truth. For one... 
For those who received God's word, we see that they're walking in freedom. That was the point of verses 13 through 43. And for those who rejected, they just continued to walk in bondage. For those who received God's word, next. There's rejoicing in who God is. Just His very character. It wasn't, God, what are you going to give me? What's in your hands? They're rejoicing in who God is. And for those who are rejecting it, they're frustrated that God is not who they think He should be. For those who received it, they're rejoicing in what God is doing in the here and now. And Redeemer Saints, I want to ask you, are you rejoicing in what God is doing, not some fanciful version of what you hope that God will do if all of your circumstances align exactly the way that you think that they should align according to your plan for those who rejected are walking in bitterness that God is not doing what they think that He should be doing. For those who received God's Word, they looked for opportunities to obey they were excited for opportunities to obey. For those who are receiving God's word, check this out. Obedience is a get to, not a have to. I get to obey the word of life that brings me greater joy than anything in this life could ever possibly offer me. And for those who rejected, they look for opportunities to make excuses why it's too hard for them to be able to obey. And lastly, for those who received God's word, they hungered for the word. For those who rejected it, they spend their time explaining it away. For those who received it, Christ is a rock of salvation. And for those who rejected it, he is a rock of stumbling and offense. So who is Christ to you today? Is he your rock of salvation? Is he your source of joy forever? more? Are you rejoicing in who he is and how he is working that out, resulting in a hunger for his word and a filling of his spirit? Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that you have just given us a joy that this world can never offer. And Lord, as you said that unless we eat your flesh and drink your blood, we have no part of you. I thank you that we get to symbolically celebrate that now through the partaking of communion. Or that we get to celebrate that not only do we get to partake of you, we are in you. We have been engrafted into you. We have been made one with you. That we will be resurrected with you. We thank you for our dear Savior. Thank you for the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.